maker, our creator. And we humbly pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dragons. Dragons have been and they continue to be wildly popular. You guys like dragons? Yeah? They are popular in art. They are popular in fantasy writing, as we know, as well as movies and TV offerings. From the story of St. George and the Dragon that was all the rage about a thousand years ago, St. George and the Dragon, uh, moving up to something like Tolkien's Smaug in 1937's book, The Hobbits, to the just-released television series, House of the Dragon, and even the well-known children's book, and then the adapted films, How to Train Your Dragon, these creatures have captured the imagination of millions of people down through the centuries. Unlike that last example, Cressida Cowell's How to Train Your Dragon, these fantastical serpents are usually depicted as ferocious and terrifying and definitely untamable. The fact that they can fly, the fact that they can breathe fire, the fact that they have armor-like scales, the fact that they are bigger than a bus, all of these would convince the sane person, even the bravest among us, that going head-to-head with a dragon is almost always going to end very, very badly. But this morning, through His Word, God wants to teach us or remind us of how each one of us can actually conquer a dragon. Look with me at Revelation chapter 12. It's the very last book of the Bible. As I mentioned last week, a fun fact, it's Revelation, no S at the end. Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, as the opening verse of the book says. The Revelation. Chapter 12 is where we're going to be camping out this morning. Our main verse that we're going to be looking at in Revelation 12 is right in the middle of this chapter in verse 11. Take a look at verse 11. This is what the Apostle John, as we know from the first chapter, the Apostle John, one of the men who walked with Jesus, he was a fisherman with his brother. He says this, uh, as he, he recounts for us this divinely given vision. Verse 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Let me read it again. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Okay, now there's our word conquered, right? See it there? Conquered. But who's being conquered here is a question we should ask. Who's being conquered and who's conquering? Well, that first question is easy to answer. The one being conquered here, as I mentioned earlier, is a dragon. It's the dragon who's mentioned in verse 3. He's introduced in verse 3 of this chapter. Just scan back up to verse 3 of Revelation 12. What do we see there? We read there, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads 
and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Those are crowns. Now wait a minute. A dragon? Seriously? A dragon? In the Bible? What's next? A unicorn in the book of Psalms? What exactly is happening here? What, what book is this? No, 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 no. The fact that we're reading about a dragon should clue us in, and it, just like it clued in the original readers, it should clue us into the fact that we are reading, we are looking at a different kind of literature here. This is different. If I went back to the Gospels and I heard about Jesus being born and laid in the manger, right? That famous story. Or at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus being crucified. That's a different kind of literature. We'd call that a genre. This is different here in Revelation 12. In fact, throughout most of the book, as John mentioned in verse 3, this dragon wasn't real. It was simply a sign See that sign that is the dragon was a symbolic image given in a supernatural vision. And thankfully, we don't need to speculate about the meaning of the symbol. We don't have to say, hmm, what does this dragon mean? What does he represent? Because John explains it for us in verse nine. Take a look down at verse nine. It says this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, that's not a reference to the Garden of Eden. Serpent is just another name for dragon. It's used that way in verse 15 and verse 17. It's a synonym here. Here's the explanation of the dragon or the serpent. He is called, who is called the devil and Satan. One of those words means accuser and one of those words means adversary. Devil and Satan. It says that he calls him the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we already know what the symbol of the dragon represents. It represents the devil, the accuser, uh, Satan, the adversary. So what John is seeing here may not be real. That is a real dragon. But the being or entity represented by the dragon is most certainly real. How do we know that? Well, the rest of the Bible speaks about him in very real terms. He is certainly real, and he is certainly ferocious. And he is certainly terrifying, as is fitting with this symbolic representation by a dragon. How do we know he's ferocious and terrifying? Just think about how another apostle, the apostle Peter, describes him in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. What does he say? He says, be sober-minded, brothers and sisters. Be sober-minded. Be spiritually watchful. Your adversary, that's Satan. That's where the Hebrew word Satan comes from. It means he, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So whether you use the image of a dragon or you use the image of a lion... The idea is clear, isn't it? This is a dangerous creature. And we should be sober-minded just as Peter encourages us here. But when we go back to that other question that we asked a moment ago, who are the they described as conquering in verse 11? Who is that they? We know who's being conquered. It's the dragon. Who's conquering? 
Well, verse 11, we are presented here with an excellent opportunity to learn more about how to understand the symbolic imagery of this visionary language used in the book we call Revelation. I don't have to tell you this is usually the most misunderstood book in the Bible. Uh, crazy people take it and run around like chickens with their heads cut off about with this book. And they do, they say all sorts of crazy things about it and they look to make it and twist it, say what they want it to say. And a lot of the problem comes from the fact they simply don't understand the language that this book was written in. They don't understand that this is a symbolic language, a visionary language. And I'll show you as we go through this how, I'll give you some tools for your toolbox to know how to read this. Once you do, it opens up beautiful vistas into what God has done, is doing, and will do that will just astound you and convict and comfort you at the same time. So let's use this question of who are the they who are conquering this morning? So first, we're going to consider how to decipher what we find here regarding the efforts of this dragon. A lot of activity in this chapter. Second, we're going to consider how we can actually defeat this dragon and frustrate his efforts. Sound good? So first of all, number one, deciphering the dragon's efforts. Let's talk about deciphering the dragon's efforts. So having recognized the symbolic imagery here, there's not a real dragon. It's a vision of a dragon. And being told about the dragon's true identity in verse 9, our next task should be to identify the first sign. There's actually a sign before the sign of the red dragon. What is that first sign? Look at verse 1. We see that there's, verse 1, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Interesting symbolism, right? Powerful so there's no explanation, unlike the, the part about the devil or Satan, there's no explanation given for who this woman is. So this is where we need to get our toolbox out and begin to work at trying to understand the language that's being used here. Like so much of Revelation, the key to making sense of this comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament. In Paul's writings, did you know Paul, the Apostle Paul? wrote most of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament is from the Apostle Paul. In his books, in his letters, I should, we should call them letters to the churches, young Christian early churches, first century, he alludes to or at least directly quotes the Old Testament about 200 times. That's just Paul. We haven't mentioned John or Peter or Jude or even the Gospels. We haven't mentioned how they reference the Old Testament. Paul, most of the New Testament, 200 times. This one book of Revelation alludes to the Old Testament 500 times. 500 times. So if you really want to understand the book of the Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament. You have to go back to the Old Testament because that is the foundation upon which these visions are based. So if we do that with this amazing picture of the woman who is standing above the moon, who is, who is crowned with 12 stars, where do we land after research? We land in Genesis 37 and the dream of Joseph who was the second to youngest son of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, 
Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel, Israel. So the children of Israel, ever heard that phrase, children of Israel? That just means the descendants of Jacob, these 12 tribes. Joseph is the one that had this dream and it had this same imagery there. So if we combine this, that idea from Joseph with the Old Testament's pervasive language, consistent language about God's people as God's wife, right? He entered into covenant. He talks about his people as his wife because he has this covenant relationship with them and he's loving them faithfully. If we put those things to the two things together, we are clearly being pointed to Israel by this symbolic representation of the woman in verse 1. But I think that we can get more specific here. Notice how verse 5, look at verse 5 with me. The woman gives birth. Do you see that? She brings forth a child. And it's safe to say that in light of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, both of which are alluded to in verse 5, Old Testament allusions coming forward, this child, it's safe to say, is Jesus. This is Jesus. So this is a vision of Israel from whom the Messiah came, the Jewish Messiah, right? Yes, but we need to get even more specific and we can get even more specific. Take a look at this. Notice how the dragon's frustrated attempt to devour her child in verse 4. See that? It leads him in anger to pursue the woman in verse 13. He's not having any of this. He wanted her child. He couldn't get her child. Now he's going after her. Verse 13. But what happens? She is divinely protected. As we see in verse 16. It's in the next verse. The very next verse. Verse 17. That we find the best clue to correctly identifying the woman. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon, it says, became furious with the woman. Divinely protected. He couldn't get her. And what did he do? He went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Oh, wait a minute. The rest of her offspring. Who are those? Well, John adds a note here. It's those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Ah, now think about that phrase, the rest of her offspring. She has brought forth Jesus, but others have also been brought forth through her. Okay, keep that. When we remember to whom and for whom this book was written, it tells us at the very beginning of the book, it's for seven churches that existed in the first century in Western Asia Minor, today called the country of Turkey. Remember this, that the addressees, and then remember the specific challenges that they were facing as detailed for us in chapters 2 and 3, the little mini letters Jesus dictated to those churches. Remember what they were going through. And we remember the encouragements we find throughout this book. Encouragements not to give in, not to give up. If you want to summarize Revelation, that's really how you keep the book. Don't give in, don't give up. Don't give in, don't give up. When we bring all of this together, then the identity of the woman's other children is clear and thus her identity becomes clear. The woman depicted in Revelation 12 is the believing Jewish remnant. These are the Jews who trusted in Christ during his ministry. 
These are the Jews who faithfully brought forth Jesus to the world. Pictured here symbolically as a pregnancy, right? A birth. They brought Jesus to the world. John, in fact, the one who's giving this revelation, who's conveying it, he was part of that believing Jewish remnant. They were the ones who brought Jesus not only to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, but also, says Acts 1-8, to the end of the earth. Want to learn more? Read the book of Acts. And you'll see how they were faithful to bring the good news of Jesus. Joseph and Mary. Think about that. The dragon tried to devour their child, didn't he? Through King Herod in Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. Tried to kill their child and ended up killing lots of children in that region. But Joseph and Mary were faithful, weren't they? They listened to God. They followed God's instructions. Though Satan had entered Judas, Luke 22, and sifted Peter, Luke 22, though he inspired and tried to inspire corruption in the Jerusalem church, Acts chapter 5, verse 3, the Jewish apostles were faithful. They were faithful. And through their faithfulness, these Jewish men and women brought the message of the Messiah to non-Jews, we call those Gentiles in the Bible, just means nations, they brought the message of Jesus to non-Jews across the Roman Empire, including these seven churches. So when John talks about the fury of the dragon and his war on the rest of her offspring, he's simply providing for his original readers a spiritual explanation of the persecution they were facing. He says, let me pull back the veil for you and help you understand why you're suffering right now. Help me understand, help you understand that. When Christians suffer around the world and in our culture today, sadly the church is being tempted not to look beyond the veil but to look in front of the veil and at the veil itself maybe and say, here's the problem. Here's what we need to do as Christians. Here's how we need to get activated. Here's our activism. Here's how we need to stand up and do this. But we're not pulling back the veil. We're not actually seeing the spiritual reality about what's driving the suffering. What's driving the clashing, spiritual friction. That's exactly what John that God is doing through John to reveal to these churches a spiritual explanation of the persecution they were facing. And according to this book called Revelation, the persecution they would continue to face even to greater degrees. That's what we see in the book. This is exactly what Paul did as well for one of the churches being addressed here. Do you remember? He wrote a personal letter to one of these churches and he said this. This is exactly what he said to them. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Yeah, believer, Christian, I know you're suffering. But don't simply look at the Roman magistrate. Don't simply look at the trade guild leader. Don't simply look at your neighbor who is giving you a hard time about your faith. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Cosmic powers. 
What does that mean? Well, we wrestle against spiritual forces of evil. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Heavenly places doesn't mean heaven. It means spiritual realms. Right In the spiritual mode of existence, in that spiritual world, there are powers of evil dead set against God's work in this world. We recognize the, these as the devil and his angels. You see, Paul was just pulling back the veil for them. He wanted them to understand what was really happening, why they were suffering. And therefore, if they understood that, they would know how to do battle spiritually. Not get caught up in the flesh and blood kinds of battles of those who have a spiritual myopia, who cannot, who are tunnel vision. They don't see the truth that's being revealed here. So the revelation will continue to unfold from this point. Chapter 12, it will continue to unfold from here and reveal the specific ways in which the dragon was indeed attacking and would attack these believers. What mechanisms? How would they suffer? How would they be persecuted? Well, chapter 13 goes on to tell how the Roman government would persecute them. That's chapter 13, the beast there. They would be persecuted through the Roman emperor cults. That's the second beast in chapter 13. Uh, did you know that the Romans thought that their emperors were divine, that they were gods, and that you had to come and worship those emperors? And if you didn't do so, you could be penalized and even killed eventually. And guess what? In all of the Roman Empire, you remember how big the Roman Empire was? North Africa, all the way to the, the Euphrates River, up into England. That's the Roman Empire. Do you know where the hotbed of Roman emperor worship was? Western Asia Minor. Western Asia Minor. That's where it was. Where these churches existed. So the Roman government, chapter 13, Roman emperor cult, and then through the seductive enticements of Roman materialism and sensuality on display daily in the city of Rome itself. That's the prostitute in chapter 17. You see, all of these symbolic representations were pointing them to where that persecution was coming from, where the temptations would come from. But what was the main point of the book? Don't give in. Don't give up. We live in a world today where we, 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 we battle with the same kinds of temptations, don't we? where there can be external forces, even authority figures who want to press us down and say, conform to the world while God says, live for me, follow my path. We live in a world of materialism and sensuality that is tempting us daily to define our lives according to the world's pleasures. God says, don't give up, don't give in. Revelation spoke to these readers to whom it was written and it speaks like the rest of the word of God to us as well today, still today. That brings us to a second consideration. Take a look. We've talked about deciphering the dragon's efforts. Let's talk about defeating the dragon's efforts. Wonderfully, Revelation 12 reveals how the dragon's efforts to do what? Snuff out the light, right? Going after the pregnant woman going after her child, going after her, making war on her other offspring. 
He's doing this over and over again. He's being frustrated over and over again. And it's with this fuller understanding that we go back to verse 11. That's our main verse this morning. Look at verse 11. And they, the accused, persecuted Christians, believers, disciples of Jesus, they have conquered the dragon. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. What did Jesus provide here for those first readers of the revelation? Those seven churches who were being tempted, who were being persecuted, all sorts of things happening according to chapters 2 and 3. What did he provide for them? Well, as they faced Satan's fury, the dragon cast down, he provided them with a powerful reminder of two dragon-slaying weapons at their disposal. Two. Number one, the blood of the Lamb. Number two, the word of their testimony. Now, you need to know the first weapon is by far the most important. It alone makes the second weapon possible. The first weapon is the most important. And if we think about what we've read so far and seen in this chapter, this reference to the lamb and his blood should drive us back to chapter 5. Take a look on the screen. I'll put an excerpt from chapter 5. This is what we saw earlier if you read, as we were reading through the book, part of our Bible reading plan available in the back counter back there. And between the throne, John's vision of the throne room of God, again, symbolic, between the throne and the four living creatures, those are cherubim, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before that lamb and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. That's the plan for ultimate justice that God is bringing to the world. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed. Set people free by paying a ransom. Redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the whole world, everyone. That's that's everybody. Right? That's people from every kind of nation, tribe, language. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And not they might, they shall reign on the earth. Remember we talked about the new heavens and the new earth? They shall reign on the earth. If you're in doubt that these folks are going to conquer, don't be in doubt any longer. They shall reign. They shall reign with Jesus. It will happen. God will accomplish it. How? By the blood of the Lamb. That amazing scene there in chapter 5, that points us even back to the opening verses of the Revelation. We're only five verses in. Jesus is described in this way. Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. In fact, that ransoming act, that redeeming act, that emancipating, liberating, but very costly sacrifice, it's also described here in chapter 12 in verses 7 through 10. Look at verses 7 through 10 in your Bible. Chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. It is no coincidence that the angelic war 
symbolically represented here, depicted in these verses 7 through 10, it's no coincidence that it's bracketed or bookended by references to the exaltation of Jesus. Christ ascending in triumph. Christ exalted. That's, that's the sandwich bun, right? What's in the middle? This angelic war described here. How has the devil been dealt such a decisive blow as we read about here? There's only one answer. By the cross of Jesus Christ. By the death of Jesus Christ. How does Michael get the upper hand on the devil? Because on the earth, Christ, the Lamb of God, shed his blood, spilled his blood. That's what's represented here. This is not my interpretation, people. This is right from Scripture. Jesus himself said this. He said this hours before his crucifixion. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's what was coming when the cross took place. When he, when he, when he sacrificed himself for sinners like us. Jesus did indeed bind the strong man. Matthew 12, Mark, whatever. He talks about having to bind the strong man first in that parable. As we read in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Jesus himself likewise partook of flesh and blood. He became like us, human, that through death, that is the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver, that is set free from slavery, right? Set free all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see how all of these things are talking about the same thing? How Revelation 12, 7 through 10 and and the angelic war that took place there and the casting out of the devil, all of this is describing the same thing. The results of Christ's cross. The results of his death. So we can be sure that that first dragon slaying weapon is quite effective. It is the victory of Jesus. His blood. The blood of the Lamb. But the victory of Jesus. Please hear this. The victory of Jesus would do these professed believers no good if they counted their lives as more precious than his death. No good. Do you see how in verse 11 John explains the word of their testimony with a follow-up phrase? For they loved not their lives even unto death. Does that make sense? Why did they bear testimony? Why did they stand up and speak? Because they loved not their lives even unto death. If as Christians, if as Christians were being ridiculed or pressured or threatened all around them, if they were not willing to speak up and identify with Jesus, but instead they bowed to the supposed lordship of a divine emperor, the dragon would be victorious. The dragon would be victorious if they were not willing to stand for Jesus, but instead bow down to the Roman emperor. Victorious over Jesus? No, never. 
Not victorious over Jesus, victorious over them. Satan would expose the hollowness of their profession of faith. And by his own estimation, and in the eyes of many in the world, he would expose the futility of faith in Christ. He would say, why would you become a Christian? Why would you live for this when people just give it up, right? They just abandon it when the next best thing comes along. Or they don't even have the courage to stand up for what they say they believe. Why would you give your heart to this? You see, Satan wants to make the gospel look foolish. He wants to make it look like it's a, a passing a phase. It's a, it's a fad. It's something that old people do. It's, who knows? You know, it's, just, it's antiquated. It's, it's kind of, ah, it's not relevant to you. It doesn't make any difference. Whether by pressure or enticement, Satan would have the victory. But for those who, verse 17, for those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, hold fast, they don't waver, they don't give up, they continue to stand for Christ. Come what may, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, Revelation says there is an amazing assurance of absolute victory they will conquer the dragon they've conquered him in fact how is that because jesus christ has been absolutely victorious that's how you and i can be absolutely victorious jesus christ has been absolutely victorious the battle the the war is won he's already defeated the enemy the enemy because his time is short is running around like a crazy man He's just, he's just looking who he can take out in his final moments. Clawing, swiping, trying to say, I will sink your faith. I will sink your faith. I will drag you down with me. Brothers and sisters, when 1212 says, the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. That's not simply describing an ancient time of persecution. It was. It was. It's also describing, though, today as well. It's describing right now. Satan and his cosmic powers over this present darkness, those spiritual forces of evil, are continuing to make war. Do you believe that? We try to shield ourselves from a lot of the bad things that happen in this world. Some of you know from firsthand experience, from your, maybe your, even your upbringing, that there is real evil in this world. Those who are well read and have their eyes open in all quarters realize there are unspeakable and unconscionable atrocities happening every single day in this world. And every single person on this planet is compromised in one way or another. Somebody may be chopping someone's head off in one country, but over here you've got somebody whispering lies to make money, practicing deceit just to make a little bit more, right? You, you have somebody who's getting thrown in prison for an unjust cause someplace, maybe in this country or another country, and you've got a woman standing with a friend back gossiping about a third woman, using her as the subject of their mockery, tearing her down so they can feel better about themselves. 
Now, you might want to gravitate to the person getting their head cut off and say, that's awful, that's evil. But my friends, God would have you in light of his word say, those women are doing evil as well. That guy and CEO looking to make a little bit extra money and becoming ethically compromised to do so, that's evil. Evil. All of it is evil. Do you see the darkness? The different ways, the strategies that our enemy uses? And he uses all of us in very subtle ways. He's using it against you. He is making war against you. Take a moment and think about the ways that you have been and are presently in the devil's crosshairs. What is he using in your life? How is he going after you? How would he have you compromise what you say you believe? How is he trying to keep you away from the light and comfortable in the darkness? Now, some of you might think, well, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not, I haven't killed anyone. I'm not, you know, cheating on my taxes. Well, but not to make thousands of dollars. I'm not doing that, pastor. And you could run down the list of things you're not doing. But my friends... Our enemies' strategies are often far more subtle than that. Far more subtle. Our prayer should be like that of the Apostle Paul. What did he say in 2 Corinthians? He said this, we are not ignorant of his designs. Whose designs? Satan's. Paul had learned how his enemy works. He had learned the common strategies. He could say, you know what? I'm going to take a little bit of bitterness in the heart of this person. Do you know that Jesus wants you to forgive just as you've been forgiven? What does that tempt us to do as Christians? We forgive on the surface. Oh yeah, I forgive. I forgive him. I forgive him. And then back over here, we're like, I don't want to ever want to see that person again. I don't want to ever just, I don't want them to speak to me. I don't want them to be my life at all. Oh yeah, I for, I've forgiven them. Praise the Lord, Pastor. I've forgiven them. (laughs) This is a lie. This is a lie. Because the heart that's forgiven is not this heart. It's not. Yes, the heart that forgives is in process many times. It takes time, right? But it submits itself. It doesn't feed the bitterness. It doesn't feed the desire like, I, I, I forgive that person, but I never want to see them or hear from them ever, ever, ever again. But I want God's best for them. Oh, really? What's being indicated about the heart? You see, Satan loves that strategy. That's part of his design. If he can plant that in you, right? If he can start here and get you off by a half of a degree, guess what over time, what's going to happen? You're going to be way off track. His subtle strategies. How does he have you in the crosshairs? Yes, there are larger movements in our nation and in nations around the world. There are larger cultural movements, political movements that the dragon is using to advance his purposes. We know that. We see that. But those cultural battles, I'm afraid, today are distracting believers from the very personal ways, unique to you, in which our enemy has already established a beachhead in your life. He's already working covertly to poison your heart and your mind. And he would love to get you obsessed with what's going on out there. He would love 
to get your thinking about Christ and the gospel wrapped up in some political or cultural silliness. Because the more that you can equate those two things together, he's got you in his grip. Because then what happens? Then you begin to measure success according to your cultural advancement. Then you begin to say, who's unfaithful? The person disagrees with me politically. They're unfaithful as a Christian. That's not what the word says. We don't make those things the metrics by which we judge faithfulness in Christ. We don't do that. The enemy has his strategies that he's working out right now. And we have to be aware of the very personal ways in which he has us in the crosshairs. Whatever the specifics are of these attacks in your life, please remember this. Above everything else, the dragon's most common strategy in weakening your grip on the second weapon is tempting you to doubt the power of the first. That's what he'll do. What is the word of your testimony if it is not the outward expression of that inward focus on the lamb and faith in the power of his blood? No one speaks a word of testimony unless their faith is in Christ, unless their faith is in the cross of Jesus where he paid the debt that he did not owe, but he paid it for us, those who could not pay. If the enemy can... Make your past regrets ring louder in your mind than Christ's past sacrifice? If he can make what others say about you more important than what the gospel says about you? If he can lead you to believe that you need to do more in spite of the fact that Jesus did it all? If he can get you to believe that real change is accomplished through worldly techniques political action or circumstantial modification rather than the eternity transforming power of Christ's death and resurrection, then he will weaken your witness. He will weaken your witness. But if Jesus and his gospel, that word just means good news, his good news are more precious to you than even your own existence on this planet then no threat of loss, no enticement to gain will be effective against you. You will stand, my friend. You will stand. Remember, brothers and sisters, the dragon's time is short, as we heard this morning. But as we heard or read in the previous chapter, Christ shall reign forever and ever. Amen? Chapter 11, verse 15. If you are here this morning, friend, if you're here this morning and you do not personally have this confidence through Jesus Christ, what's been described here, then God wants to change that today. He wants to do a work in you. You don't have to live a life of fear and compromise. Admit that in spite of the fact God is above everything else. Admit that you have loved your life here and now above everything else. That's what's been most important to you. Confess it, admit it, and then turn and say, God is above everything else. I've been wrong. I've lived my life as if, as if it's the most important thing here and now. It's not. God is the most important thing. And what he has for me is most important. 
Do that and receive in faith this morning the forgiveness that is made possible by the blood of Jesus. May all of us remember why this revelation, why this book was given, that we would be prepared for hardship and that we would honor Jesus in the midst of that hardship. How? By remembering that past, present, and future, the Lamb remains worthy and God remains firmly seated on His throne. Amen? Amen. Pray with me if you would.